Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. So today I'm super excited to welcome a good friend and someone who's been really instrumental in my own professional career, maybe one of the most instrumental figures in my, my professional career as the first institutional investor to believe in me as a founder and write that first the first venture check I, I ever deposited, actually. Uh, Angela has more than 15 years experience as a venture capitalist. She co-founded the Portland Seed Fund. Uh, she serves as the managing director of Portland State University's Center for Entrepreneurship and manager of the Portland State Business Accelerator. Um, Angela Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eli. It's great to be here. <laughs> so uh, I always love to start with with the kind of origin stories. And I know uh, from having had many uh, after working session beers with you that um, you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. So I would love to just take a second to hear that story and and understand and maybe ask how you think growing up in an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial family has influenced your career. Thanks for asking that because it's uh, it's one of my favorite things to think about and talk about. You know, when you're a kid, you don't think your life is any different than anyone else's. And it's not really till you're a lot older that you look back and realize, you know, what? Not everyone sat at the dinner table and talked about the company that uh, my parents were starting or, you know, uh, it, it was a very different perspective. And I think it comes down to risk appetite. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but my family always had everything on the line with the family business and very much saw running a business as a privilege and a humble opportunity to help uh, grow wealth, not just with our own family, but all the people that worked with and for the company. And those lessons are really embedded in how I see business today and what motivates me. Uh, it's, it's not all about money. I mean, money is a reflection of what follows when you do a lot of things right. Um, but most people who end up getting rich, they're, they're chasing a mission or a movement and not so much money. Money just happens along the way. And that was a core value. And um, I very much remember those conversations and that risk appetite <laughs> growing up like that. Sure. And so, I mean, at this point, just to flash forward for listeners um, who are, are catching up on your story, I mean, you've had how many exits now? with the Portland Seed Fund in, in an incredibly short period of time? Yeah, we've been very fortunate. Uh, I think that um, 2010 was when we started investing with Portland Seed Fund. And uh, as a timing check, we were coming out of the Great Recession. And uh, there were a lot of entrepreneurs getting started and valuations were good. At this point, we've had uh, more than 20 accretive exits. And by that, I mean... I'm only counting the ones that have at least returned capital. We've done better than return capital. Otherwise, you don't make it as, a, as an investor. Uh, all the way up to sort of mid-level mid, mid 
double digit exits, um, multiples rather on exit. And of course, as you know, with uh, this very early stage investing, a lot of exits come by way of failure. And we've certainly had our share of failures as well. I never like to hear seed or early stage investors say that they haven't had any fail yet because that's the wrong asset class. Uh, Their failure comes with this very early risk taking and you can model so that you uh, offset taking extraordinary risk um, with extraordinary gain. Um, But, you know, to say um, we haven't had a failure yet is just, you know, that's, that's more of a main street or PE kind of thought. Sure. So I'd love to dig into that. I mean, as you know, the the purpose of the show here is to um, dig for stories that uncover patterns from that initial sprint going from 1 million in ARR to 10 million and beyond and chatting with investors and operators who have seen these play out time and time again. And and so, you know, you begin to establish some really good pattern matching both in what works and what doesn't work. So maybe rather than starting with what you've seen work, it would be really fascinating to flip the script and start with patterns that you've seen play out that almost always have led to the ones that didn't work out. And then, and then we can talk about the fun ones that that did. That sounds great. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I knew what we were going to talk about and I, I looked back over the early portfolio and we invested in a lot of SaaS early on. Uh, so I am curious as to why we're seeing as a ratio, fewer SaaS deals, um, we could prognosticate about that later if you want. But as I look through that early list, uh, many of them were just what you described, not big winners. Uh, they exited. They found an exit, uh, a home. But there was, you know, it was more of a, you know, a survival play or, a you know, a rescue. And if you, again, you can almost chart our investment uh, arc from recovery some of those early early exits closer to 2010 were what we would call aqua hires and those don't often come at the highest multiples but at the same time you're glad to see the team um you know have a soft landing get uh a new home uh their packages their employment packages are good and you like to see that uh, but the return for the investor on some of those wasn't so hot. And uh, I think as I look back on what characterized some of those early investments and why did they go the way they did, I think, you know, one of the trends was that they were largely technical founders who were creating product to solve kind of niche problems. And they believed, and I guess we believed too, or we wouldn't have written the check that somehow that could transform into something more catalytic with high velocity growth that, um, you know, could be a super promising SaaS business. Uh, but many of those early investments, and I'm here looking at a list of about 12 of them that, you know, great founders, very earnest, their primary skill set was technical product making. Um, but they probably lacked any ability to uh, jump houses <laughs> into another functional area in the company. 
they resisted sales, they resisted marketing, they resisted boards, uh, or they resisted having, you know, even someone come in and do the books. So that looking back is a pattern uh, that I, I can already tell in how we've changed up our investing by fund three now that we we've learned from and we're we're jumping into fewer of those deals. So that's really interesting. Now, if we take the inverse of that, you're in fund three, it sounds like you are partnering then or looking for founders and early operating teams who either have those functional roles filled out already or or the openness to like how do you how do you begin to look for that? I think that's where you get into how do you look for a great CEO uh, who who can endure. Uh, so, and Eli, I hope you don't mind if I point you out here as one of those great CEOs. <laughs> um, Why? Thank you. I'm you blushing. had the capacity and capability to learn the technical side, but you also understood. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it was a sales and a marketing and a business as well as a technical company, and you were able to bridge multiple silos of functional expertise. And increasingly, I see that ability in, in the companies and the founders who go the distance. Uh, so it's not to say we wouldn't invest in purely technical co-founders, but now we find ourselves finding those who've already had the hard lesson that just as a tech team, they didn't go very far. And we've invested recently in Fund3 uh, with some uh, you know, really smart and talented, uh, successful exited tech co-founders who earlier in their careers had a couple of zeros uh, and learned from that that the, it was very important for them early on to reach across silos and uh, bring in co-founders that had other functional skill sets. Uh, so yeah, there's a couple of these that I'm really proud that we're in right now that I have high hopes for. Uh, I hesitate to name them if that's okay, uh, just because I'm not sure whether they want the publicity or not. But I'll, I will sure. say both of them are related to fast computing in, of one flavor or another of the ones I'm thinking of where they're very technical, but they had that school of hard knocks to to broaden the team sooner. So... I'm curious then let's let's uh, dig into some specifics are there are there any kind of let's say for the ones who that have been great the ones that have the team or or the aptitude to um be cross functional or know when to invest into certain you know sales and marketing initiatives do you have any stories of of specific initiatives where a company made that leap or that initial step into truly becoming an organization that was beginning to scale, beginning to, you know, increase their le level of sophistication. And ultimately that step took them down the path of crossing the 10 million ARR mark. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, funny enough, I'm actually going to tell you a story that embodies that, but it's about a company that proves that I, I was wrong. So, um, and this is the thing. I think to be a good investor, you have to be willing to be wrong. And you have to acknowledge that uh, luck is 
definitely a part of the game. And not a lot of people want to say that. They want to say, yeah, I know how to pick them. Uh, <laughs> but the the over 10 million ARR story I'm going to tell you is one that totally defies what I said. It's a, a technical co-founder, very technical, very methodically juiced uh, the ARR, very methodically with no investment in sales or marketing. Um, Technical marketing, yes, but um, demand gen, yes, but not uh, anything other than analytics and performing analytics, measuring everything. And, you know, and I'll be damned if um, they did not methodically grow, uh, you know, above forecast to supersede, you know, several years ago now they passed the 10 million ARR mark. Um, but here's here's where it does kind of come back to what I said. There was a point where they flatlined. And again, this was a company that wanted to measure everything almost ad nauseum. Uh, but they they realized at that point that technical founder realized that, you know, he alone, his style of thinking alone, it wasn't so much that he went for a sales and marketing uh, talent as that he recognized that his way of seeing the world needed uh, companion ways of seeing. Uh, and through that process, I think they were able to kind of push through this, uh, this mark. But I think, you know, the one to $10 million, it, it, it sounds like, uh, oh, well, if you get one, 10 not any harder, but it really is. It really is a very big gap to bridge. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a whole different ball game. Um, so what ultimately, Amy, you said that there was some pushing and, and, and more just methodical digging. Was there something in particular that took them from that flat line to push through it? I, I again, think that it was uh, realizing that there, you know, and this is normal human nature. We, we tend to recruit people who are just like us. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, oh. I, I sure do like that person. What is it about that person that makes me like them? And an outsider might see, oh, you just hired yourself. Um, but sometimes those things are too close to us and we don't notice them ourselves. And somewhere in there, that particular CEO, whether he had help from an outsider or it was internal aha moment, realized he had been hiring people who saw the world exactly as he did. Uh, so while still maybe not comfortable making whole investments in different functional silos, actively started to recruit people who he maybe even bristled with a little bit at first uh, as a way to, you know, embrace a more diverse uh, set of perspectives at the decision-making table, if you will. Sure. So now, all right, well, this is getting interesting. Now we're wading into the world of, of bias, whether known or unknown. And, I think this would be a fascinating subject to unpack, especially with you know the investor lens and your view on on kind of seeing how these biases have have played out as you've watched them unfold. Um, I guess let's. I'd love to just open that up as as a a topic broadly and see where things go. Sure, I I think pattern matching is what we're effectively talking about here or pattern recognition, uh, as with all complex ideas, 
uh, it can be a good thing or a negative thing. Pattern matching has been one of the key reasons that women and people of color uh, have had such a hard time getting funding uh, for companies that could be equal in performance and potential when it comes to getting venture capital. And um, if you try to unpack that, well, why is that? Are people actively biased? Uh, you know, I'm going to, I tend to assume the best and assume people have more unconscious bias than active bias, but let's unpack the whole pattern recognition thing, right? Uh, we all have heard the story of the investor who made a ton of money from a guy who did a thing with the guy and this and this. And simply that there weren't as many women and people of color trying and leading companies uh, a decade or two decades ago, the sheer numbers of entrants uh, to try and succeed or fail were fewer. And so uh, the pattern recognition or pattern matching, odds are if that's how people are making decisions in terms of who they're funding, um, that can be a real negative in terms of seeking out more diverse teams. And actually, the way I just told this story, it was, it was in fact, the seeking of more diverse thoughts at the table that helped them to a breakthrough. Um, so, so yeah, like all complexity, as soon as you make a hard rule, you go and break it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So in, in 2015, uh, we're shifting gears here. In 2015, you won the Woman of Influence Award um, from the Portland Business Journal. And I know for a fact you're a, an inspiration and a mentor to so many people in the startup community. I'm curious who your mentors are. And, and maybe not even mentor, mentor is a strong word. I'm curious who has been an inspiration to you in your career. That is a lovely question to answer. I, I have to start with my parents who uh, were very boundary pushing and edgy for their time, uh, especially my mother, whose main job was to hold it together while my father was the entrepreneur. And she would say things like, you know, half that paycheck is mine. And we would look at her and say, you're joking. What are you what are you saying? And now I feel so bad about that because now I completely get it. But I think how rad <laughs> she was to uh, to lay that out there. And um, they were a good partnership in that regard and very successful in the end, but through lots of struggle. Uh, so they're really, I start with them as, you know, my main leaders and mentors. But other people that I'm really inspired by are, Honestly, people who've pushed boundaries at non-obvious times. And I think a lot about uh, comedy, actually. Uh, and in particular, comedians, women comedians, who through history were very much like entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, they were out in a market before other people were there, before it was socially acceptable. Um, and pushing the boundaries and finding nuggets of truth that uh, they could capitalize on. Uh, and I think of Lucille Ball, I think of Carol Burnett, uh, they and others, um, but those were two examples of people who really inspired me to push the boundary and make my contribution, even if it may be ahead of its time, I guess. 
Sure. I know wow. those aren't business. Uh, no. But I'll come at it the other way too. As a personality, um, you know, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and creative people who don't want to work for corporations. Uh, so we're all very unemployable, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Preach. I hear that. Yes. And, but I have sort of the personality trait that goes with that of also loving people and liking people to enjoy being around me. So I, I have a sort of a twofold experience with pushing the boundaries. Sometimes I'm, you know, I'm uncomfortable with it personally like with my personality versus what I want to accomplish. So learning to balance those two things that for me is as I've aged, uh, I've gotten much more comfortable with that. But when I was younger in my career, I would, you know, be less willing to say something controversial or do something unpopular. So again, the comedians are a big inspiration to me for that reason. I love that approach that, that, that lens is, it's really refreshing. Well, Angela, this has been so meaningful to me to have you on this show um, to hear some of the stories that I hadn't already heard and, and um, revisit some of the ones that I've loved from the past, our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure all of our listeners are, are there's tremendous nuggets in there for everyone, regardless if they're uh, an investor or, or an operator themselves. So thank you so much. Eli, I'm so honored that you asked me to do this and I've really enjoyed catching up with you again. <laughs> Great. <laughs>